The text for this morning's sermon is taken from Matthew 18, verse 14, which we'll read again if you want to turn your Bibles to that. Matthew 18, verse 14. We read as follows, So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. The sermon for this morning was prepared by Reverend Clarence Bowman while serving as minister of the Smithville Canadian Reformed Church. <coughs> Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, so it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. With those words, our Lord Jesus Christ exposes the heart of what mutual discipline among Christians is all about. The Father, no little child of his should perish. The Father, he loves his little children. And that's why the children are given the opportunity and the obligation to be their brother's keeper. I need today, brothers and sisters, to begin a brief series of sermons about the word of our Lord on mutual discipline. I need to do so because evidence indicates that this matter of discipline is not our strong point. The marks of the true church include that it practices the pure preaching of the gospel and that it maintains pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. It also includes it exercises church discipline for correcting and punishing sins. If we may confess that the Emmanuel Canadian Reformed Church of Edmonton is by God's grace, his church, then all three marks must be present. That includes the third mark, that mark about church discipline, actively being the brother's keeper. But we know how it goes. Actually, to go to your brother and tell him his fault? Happily welcome into your house the brother who has come to tell you your fault? Truly, we find the command to speak to a brother or sister about sin we've seen, a difficult command to carry out. Who am I, we say, that I should speak about his faults? I've got my hands full with myself. And when someone comes to tell us about our faults, well, we think the other person ought to mind their own business. And he'd best pull the beam out of his own eye before he comments on the speck in my eye. When all is said and done, we don't feel so comfortable with the so-called rule of Matthew 18. Let it be fixed in our minds, congregation, that church discipline does not begin or end with the work of the elders. Church discipline begins and ends with the members themselves. If the membership of the church does not exercise church discipline among each other, the elders are not able to exercise discipline effectively either. If the membership does not see to it that God's little ones in our midst do not perish, we cannot rightfully call ourselves a church of Jesus Christ. We begin this brief series with listening today to Matthew 18. We do so because this chapter is commonly understood to give us some basic principles of church discipline. As we hope to see, Matthew 18 lays responsibility for church discipline 
not on office bearers, but on the individual members of the congregation. More, this chapter outlines the attitude that is to drive our mutual discipline. The theme of the sermon may be summarized as follows. The Father does not wish a single little one to perish. In developing this point, I ask for your attention for, firstly, what a little one is. Secondly, how you help a little one. And third, how you help one who hinders a little one. From the section of Matthew 18 we read together, it is particularly the verses 15 to 17 that are familiar to us and that are known amongst us as referring to church discipline. In fact, it's verses 15 to 17 that we know of as the rule of Matthew 18. Yet, I have chosen as text not one of these three verses, but instead verse 14. I have various reasons for choosing verse 14 as text, but one in particular that I would like to share with you this morning. That is this. Verses 15 to 17 do not stand by themselves, are not a separate word from the Lord Jesus spoken without context. If we are to understand the thrust of verses 15 to 17, we need to understand when Jesus spoke them, to who he spoke them, and why he spoke them. By using verse 14 as the window to look into the entire chapter, these couple of well-known verses on church discipline will also appear in a richer and more comforting light than we normally perceive them, and that will be beneficial in our efforts to come to grips with the Lord's will for us in our chapter. Our text tells us of the will of your Father who is in heaven, The Father's will, says Jesus, is that not a single one of these little ones should perish. Who are the little ones of whom Jesus speaks? Actually, the previous verses had mentioned these little ones various times. Verses 6, 10, also the word child, as we read in verse 2, 4, and 5. In fact, the notion of these little ones is the thread tying these verses together. Let me try to highlight this thread for you. I read in verse 2 that that Jesus, he was standing there talking with his disciples, called to him a child and put him, the little child, in the midst of them. He did so in reaction to a question from his disciples in verse 1. That question is, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That question in turn had been prompted by the event concerning the tax in the previous chapter, 17, verse 24 to 27. For there Peter had been favored among the twelve. That is, of all possible disciples, the tax collectors approached Peter with their question. And Peter was allowed to catch the fish with the golden coin in its mouth, and the Lord let Peter take that half of the money to pay for himself, while the other eleven had to pay the tax from their own pockets. That's favoritism, they thought, and so they asked the question of 18 verse 1. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Given the events of chapter 17, Jesus must surely have designated Peter as the greatest in the kingdom. The disciples wanted confirmation. They wanted to know the pecking order in Jesus' kingdom, hence their question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? In reply to that question, Jesus placed a child on the center of the stage. Then Jesus says, the question should not be who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, whether Peter 
Andrew or John or Thaddeus? Jesus says Jesus, there's a question that you disciples have to deal with before you come to the one about pecking order, and that's the question of who gets into the kingdom in the first place. Says Jesus to his disciples, if you're thinking in terms of which of you will be the greatest in that kingdom, your mind is totally on the wrong track, for then you will not even get in to begin with. To illustrate then the requirements for entry into the kingdom, Jesus summoned that little child playing over there, and he said to the disciples, if you want to get into the kingdom of heaven, you need to become like that little child. That is, you need to change your attitude. You need to be transformed from your self-sufficient, independent bodies into dependent, obedient, humble children. Not thoughts of a pecking order, with yourself on top, of course, need to busy your minds, nor thoughts of what's in it for you, or what do other th others think of you, but thoughts of being little, humble as this child. I called and he came. He didn't ask questions. Humble as this little child, that's what you need to be like to get into the kingdom of heaven. And that's what you need to be like to be the greatest inside that kingdom. I don't, brothers and sisters, know any adult who likes to be a little child again. Sure, we all have our times in which we express envy for the carefreeness that belongs to little children, but to actually be a little child again? No. For we adults rather like the notion of being able to look after ourselves, to have another tie our shoelaces, or do personal hygiene for us. We find that offensive. We want to be people in our own right, acknowledged as persons who can think for ourselves, look after ourselves, Humble as this little child? Just do what we're told? Quietly accept care from another person? No, we don't like that. That's to make ourselves vulnerable to all sorts of hurt. Persons in our families who have received a handicap later in life know just how difficult it can be to have to accept help. Jesus knows that. For that reason, Jesus adds the word of verse 5 to 9, he knows very well that to humble, be humble like a little child is to be vulnerable, is to be wide open to feeling belittled, wide open to even being hurt or abused. So Jesus speaks about the attitude one needs to take such a little child, the attitude one is to take towards the adult who has become like a little child, the self-sufficient independent adult who has set aside his self-sufficiency and independence and is willing to be helped, is willing to come when he's called, willing to do what he's told, like this little child. Says Jesus in verse 5, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. That is to say, Jesus is busy in the life of this person. Jesus is busy bringing this adult into the kingdom of heaven, and so this adult has humbled himself, is willing to seek help and salvation from the Lord Jesus because he knows that he cannot save himself. To receive such a person then and to help him in his wanting to be helped is to receive Jesus himself. It's to receive the Jesus who is busy bringing this helpless adult to salvation. I need to give this a little bit more color. What kind of persons are we to think of here? Who concretely are the little ones 
in verse 6. In verse 6, Jesus describes them as who believe in me. That is, these are the ones who entrust themselves to Jesus, come to him for help. Like that little child, as he came when he was called and didn't stay at a distance, so those who believe in Jesus come when they are called and entrust themselves to Jesus as their guide, as their help, their refuge. These are the little ones. Already the disciples had seen many such persons in the course of their time with Jesus, many who, need, who heeded the preaching of Jesus and come to Jesus for healing of their sick, raising of their dead, etc. They could not help themselves. In the face of the sickness of their loved ones, they knew they could not help themselves. So they came to Jesus with outstretched hands, ready to receive help. These are the little children in whom Jesus was working, bringing them into his kingdom. Now how should the disciples respond when such an adult came to Jesus crying for help for his sick daughter? This brings us to our second point. How do you help him? We understand when a little one comes to Jesus crying for help, you receive that person. You help him along. You bring him to Jesus. You encourage him to make that final request. Yes, you say to Jairus, go to the Lord. Tell him of your sick daughter. Ask him, please come and heal. Such a little one who comes empty-handed to Jesus to ask for help, the last thing he needs is to be pushed to the back of the row. The last thing he needs is to be told by the disciples that Jesus doesn't have time for you. To be told that he's not good enough for Jesus. To be told that he isn't dressed nice enough for Jesus. Or hasn't learned to say the right words. When such a man who is humble in his heart comes looking for help from the Savior of the Lord world, it's for the disciples to receive that man with open arms and not lay a stumbling block on the path of that vulnerable man. God is busy in the life of that person. God has worked in him a longing to receive help. And so any who in some way gives cause to that vulnerable man to sin must face the wrath of holy God himself. It would be better for such a disciple to have a millstone hung around his neck and be dropped into the depths of the deepest trench of the Pacific Ocean. Yet even there, God's wrath shall find him. Hence the radical language of verse 8. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, that is to say, if you somehow let yourself, through your hand or your foot, be a stumbling block to one of these vulnerable little ones who come to Jesus for help, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, lest you end up eternally in hell because you are a hindrance in the life of one whom God was busy bringing into his kingdom. You hindered that person to coming to the Savior. In verse 9, Jesus underlines his point of verse 8, and if your eye causes you to sin again by you somehow becoming a cause for stumbling, on the part of one of these vulnerable little ones who are seeking God, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, lest you end up eternally in hell because you hindered a vulnerable little one whom God was bringing into his kingdom. The attitude each of the disciples standing around Jesus was to have was to a little one who came to Jesus for help had to be one of eager receiving. 
a keenness to help that self-effacing, vulnerable, broken person enter the kingdom of heaven. So any word, any action, any attitude that hindered another in coming to the Lord had to be cut out of the disciples' lives. In their eagerness to help the little one in coming to Jesus, any cause for offense had to be removed, brutally, if necessary. Again, it's that attitude of wanting to help, that attitude of being eager to receive any little one who seeks Jesus for help that is pointed to in verse 10 to 13. Jesus says, See to it that you do not despise one of these little ones. That is, not to be eager to help. Somehow to ignore such a little one is to despise that little one, is to slight that little one. That's a bad thing to do, since God is working with that little one. God has his angels always reporting how that little one is going. If that adult who seeks help like a child is so very much the focus of God's attention, God even sent his only son to save such lost ones. How fitting is it that such little ones be the focus of the disciples' attention? The shepherd who notices one of his hundred sheep is missing leaves the 99 and goes to search for that one that is lost, the one that is wide open to the animals of prey and vulnerable to wolves. He does anything to find that one back. God did even more. He sent his son to save the lost. Now those whom the son has redeemed by the blood of the cross are coming to Jesus. One here, another one there. They're coming to Jesus in response to his call, coming with empty hands, coming for help. Like that little child, they've got nothing to offer. They're not men in the worldly sense of the term. They're humble, vulnerable, and they know themselves sinners. They're buried under the problems and burdens of sin, and they come, they come for help. Shall a disciple then push them away? Shall a disciple have an attitude of not wanting to help? That is highly offensive to God. He does not want one of these little ones to perish. Again, I will give this some more color. Who concretely might a little one seeking the Lord's help? Look, beloved, that's any person who comes to the Lord with the attitude of the child, empty-handed, wanting help, it's the mothers who bring their children to Jesus for his touch. It's the synagogue ruler who wants Jesus to heal his daughter. It's the woman with the flow of blood who wants to touch Jesus' hem. It's Peter on the night of Jesus' betrayal who cries out his grief for having denied the Lord. It's the Ethiopian eunuch who seeks to understand the Old Testament. It's the teenager down the road today who cries out his despair in the face of hopelessness of today's world and so comes to church for help. It's the mother around the corner whose heart is torn because of the drunkenness of her husband and so comes to her Christian neighbor looking for help. It's the man who was convicted of sin through a Billy Graham crusade or the laborers of another televangelist. It's the brother in the congregation who confesses with tears the sin of which he's become guilty. God is, in at work, is, in, is at work in each one of these persons, works in them the desire to seek help in his only son, and so this God does not wish a single one of these little ones to perish. 
Hence the warning of verse 6, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. But we know what happens, brothers and sisters. Mothers bring their little ones to Jesus for his touch, and the disciples hinder the mothers. A brother in the congregation falls into sin, realizes he is guilty of sin, confesses sin, seeks forgiveness, and we snicker at the fact that he fell and look on him for years to come as a sinner. A stranger comes to church in search of help from the Lord Jesus Christ, and after church, we watch with our friends as he works his way through the crowd. Someone comes to church with us for a period of years and then leaves again because the members' lives are a stumbling block to his growth in the Lord. These little ones are hindered by the brotherhood and coming to the Lord God. This brings us, brothers and sisters, to our third point. How do you help one who hinders a little one? This is the specific context in places of verse 15 through 17. These verses are not a new topic in Jesus' speech, but flow directly on from verse 14. Altogether, says Jesus to his disciples in verse 14, you are children of your Father who is in heaven, and therefore brothers and sisters of each other. And altogether, you need to be little, humble, vulnerable, one of these little children, that's you disciples in your sinfulness. Well now, if you as a little one are hindered in coming to Jesus for help, hindered by one of your own brothers, go and tell him his fault. Why go and tell him his fault? Because of the words of verse 6. God's wrath will rest on that offender so he will be lost. But God doesn't want his own lost. He leaves the 99 in search of the one. So also you, if your brother sins against you, if your brother does not help but rather hinders you in coming to Jesus in your needs, go and tell him his fault. Now I know if your brother has hurt you, i.e. has hindered you in some way in coming to the Lord to seek the help you need in your circumstances, the human, do, human thing to do is ignore your brother or even take vengeance. But the Lord said to Israel long ago in Leviticus 19, verse 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the chil children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So do not look down your nose at your brother because he failed you, nor hold a grudge against him because of the hurt he directed against you. Rather, rebuke him. That is love. For verse 6, his sin towards you will cost him his salvation. His sin against you, his insensitivity to you in your hour of need, makes him one of the lost sheep. So go, seek him out, lest he perish, Tell him what he did wrong, how he offended you in your growth in the Lord. Tell him so that he may have the opportunity to repent of his wrong. And if he laughs at your admonition, if he doesn't want to be little, one of the little ones of our chapter, 
Don't pass him off as, as in, well, that's his business. For he shall one day then face the awful wrath of God. So take with you a couple of brothers, persons who with you know their dependence on the Lord and seek again the brother who is straying, who has taken advantage of your vulnerability and refuses to repent. The purpose is to find the lost sheep. And it's for the witnesses also to address the straying brother on his sin. Again, if the accumulated admonitions of two or three do not produce the desired repentance, tell it, says Jesus, to the church. That is, tell it to the gathering of the believers, says Jesus to the disciples around him, and presumably the little boy is still standing there. If one of you refuses to be humble like a child, empty-handed before God, dependent, confessing sin, and so being small because of sin, then tell all the rest of the believers. Why? That more pressure may be brought to bear on the straying brother, and he may come to repentance. Again, if he refuses even to hear the church, let him to be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. And what is it like to be a heathen and a tax collector? If you were a Pharisee, it meant that you avoided them like the plague. And if you were a disciple, you also preferred to avoid them and tended to avoid them. They were, after all, considered to be low society. But if you followed the example of Jesus, you reached out to them. That is, heathens and tax collectors, people like Zacchaeus, were sinners, the lost ones whom the Son of Man came to save. You see, brothers and sisters, there's the matter of the attitude again for the sinner. As the Father does not want a single one of the little ones to perish, so too the children of this Father may not wish a single one to perish. Sin gets between the sinner and God, so that the wrath of God must settle on the sinner. That sinner is lost. So seek out that sinner. Be a little child in attitude not looking for our own glory, our own reputation, our own honor, but give freely of time and energy. Give freely in total self-denial to seek out the brother who doesn't have the attitude of the little child anymore. Seek him out by yourself. Seek him out with the assistance of a couple of others. Seek him out with the assistance of the whole church. Seek him out that he may be found. Seek him out even if he turns his back on the church. Seek him out like Jesus sought out Zacchaeus in the sycamore tree. Seek him out that he may not perish everlastingly. Remember, it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Never, never can you say that sin is his problem. As the Son of Man did not leave our sins to be our problem, but sought us out in total denial of the self on the cross of Calvary, so it is for us to take the plight of the straying brother or sister to heart, never mind the cost to yourself, in an attempt to find him, to save him. And if we don't, if we cannot be bothered to do everything possible to save that erring brother, then we become an offense to that erring brother or sister in their, be it sin-filled, attempt to seek the Lord and his help. And the Lord will require his blood from our hands. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? 
The greatest, beloved, is the one who is the least. The greatest is that strong, fiercely independent, self-sufficient man who becomes like the little child, who confesses his own bankruptcy and seeks help from the Lord. In his life, God is busy. For such a one, he gave up his only son. The greatest is that little child who sees that his brother, another for whom Christ died, is an offense, a stumbling block in coming to the Lord. So he goes to tell him his fault, never mind the cost to self. The greatest is the one who has no regard for the self, for his own reputation, his own likes and dislikes, who has regard only for the salvation of the other, and so does whatever he can to make sure that the other one does not perish. The greatest is he who adopts for himself the attitude of the Son of God himself. He emptied himself, gave up the riches of heaven, so that you and I might be saved. Amen.